City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Uh, well, City Limits is the first Wednesday of the month and it's therefore Transport Day. Our regular transport commentator, John McPherson's with us today. We've also got Zeb Peak with us. We've got Meg Kimber with us. I'm Kevin Healy. I'm with us as well, sort of. We've also got, of course, Karina doing all the, the really hard work of getting us on air and then editing us afterwards and making it sound good. So it's transport today, John. We we were going to also have Kath Larkin, an activist in the union, but she's unfortunately sick. We'll get her next month. But we might talk about a couple of the things she was going to talk about anyway um, later on in transport because there's quite a bit happening, including, as you're aware, um, some pretty interesting revelations at the corruption inquiry here in Victoria. Yeah, um, it's it's an ongoing saga. It, it's um, sort of a repeat of things that happened about three years ago. There was problems with um, corruption back then within the V-Line stroke uh, metro world. Mm. Yeah, look, what we haven't, what we must do though is pour a cup of tea. Hang on a tick. There we are. That means that there, we've got one listener in particular who will now be rushing to the toilet. He tells me every week he has to rush when he hears that goes. So there you are. <laughs> um, the Look, speaking of corruption inquiries, uh, on Monday, Porter, the Attorney General, released the model of the draft that he's been hanging on to for ages since December last year of a federal corruption body or anti-corruption body and he now says we still need heaps of more consultations but it's been it's been attacked pretty universally by everybody except the government itself and in fact the Labor Party uh, came out and said it's the integrity commission you establish when you don't want to establish an integrity commission and Rex Rex Patrick, the independent from South Australia, who's pretty conservative, but he said he's concerned about the model and restrictions on the commissioner's powers and did not think it would be established this side of an election. There's absolutely no point in having an integrity commission with one arm tied behind its back and wearing a blindfold, he said. <laughs> and there's been a number of attacks. And this morning, on, or not this morning, yesterday morning, we were recording this on Tuesday, we may as well say that. Um, yesterday morning on radio, a former councillor Sistig in the New South Wales inquiries said that we'd be better off with nothing than this and he hopes it gets knocked back so that a future government can come up with something a lot better. So it's been under universal tactics. I did say except for the government but also except from Rupert Murdoch and in the Herald Sun yesterday morning it only gave it five paragraphs tucked away on page two but the headline was proposed watchdog's big teeth <laughs> and it says that it's going to have all these amazing powers to do wonderful things and it, it quotes uh, it quotes of course Christian Porter the, the Attorney General who says it will have greater powers than a Royal Commission which incidentally this bloke on radio yesterday morning said was a total lie he, he called it a lie 
and Porter said the powerful body, so this is the coverage in the Herald Sun, not one word of criticism, but everywhere else it's been criticised as being uh, completely inadequate. And I know it's something you've been thinking about for a long time as well, Meg, so there you mm. are. Yeah, I mean, they've been under pressure to do something because it's been years. It was promised before the election because pressure, pressure from the opposition and, and the crossbench when they everyone basically signed on in, in principle and Labor put out a whole plan of how what their sort of watchdog would look like. And all along they've known that the that the coalition hasn't wanted to, to put it in place. They've always found some kind of excuse and then they put it off a little bit longer and then there was bushfires and then COVID and finally now they're having to sort of look like they're doing something on it and the, what they've done is is pretty clearly um, a, uh, a mediocre effort. Yeah, very mediocre. Um, there's, another, there's another proposal too from the um, independent member from Indi. She's, she launched her, her proposal in Parliament, um, I think this week, yeah. She's another cross, crossbencher. So there's a little bit more pressure coming from that, that angle as well to get something decent up. One of the reasons that it's been put off for quite some, or one of the give, stated reasons that Christian Porter had said was because it's, you know, really tricky to work out what to do when in actual fact, you know, most if not all of the states and territories have an independent watchdog mm. already. So, and the New South Wales one is considered that kind of pretty close to best practice. So it's not really, you don't really have to reinvent the wheel unless you want to make something that looks like it's going to do something and actually has no teeth. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the New South Wales one seems to be the gold standard and, and of course, it's just embarrassed the um, state um, premier. Yeah. Uh, very, very considerably. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, was a, it was a reasonable, quite totally a reasonable thing to have to happen because of, the, the, the questionable, you know, private, very secret relationship between her and somebody who is um, um, regarded as corrupt um, from her backbench. Um, so, um, you know, that, that of course, um, rings alarm bells in Canberra because it's, um, um, you know, they're thinking, oh, dear, something similar could happen to us. We don't want that. Yeah, the, the member for Indi raised it last week, I think, to, because she, she in fact brought in her private member's bill because the government was sitting on it for so long. Uh -huh. And one assumes that her bill has now prompted them to come out pretty quickly and at least produce the thing yesterday or Monday. But uh, also, it, apparently, it, it, can, it can't be retrospective. So there's a number of areas, we, I think we mentioned this in the last couple of weeks, like like the land deal, the airport land deal, yep. the uh, sports rorts affair, all those things, because they can't be looked at retrospectively, apparently can't be looked at, which is quite ridiculous, because they, they would seem to be <laughs> prime cases for having a look at them. Yep. <laughs> classic, classic move. Yeah, so there you are. But look, there is some good news this week. Um, <laughs> you say there's that, a, Okay, there's a mob called the Bradford Exchange, which keeps turning up these glossy things that fall out of newspapers, mainly the Herald Sun, and they promote things like medallions and coins to commemorate great moments of war and killing and slaughter, or great moments in the life of the royal family, whom they think we all love. And they keep turning these things up at great prices, but this week they've, they've outdone themselves. 
this week you can pick up the wonderful world of Disney Christmas tree. Isn't this wonderful news? And I think that the spiel says it all. Over the years, the beloved Disney characters have given us countless gifts, unforgettable moments of love, laughter, and imagination. Now the magic of Disney delivers all the joys of the holidays with the wonderful world of Disney Christmas tree. Isn't that beautiful? The, the, the script, the, the script writers, the, the script writers must have fun coming up with the most cloying comments they can find. But anyway, <laughs> this is it. It is a step up from commemorating acts of war, I suppose. <laughs> it is, <laughs> but but not uh, not much above it, I don't think. Um, but you can snap this up for a mere three hundred dollars, and in fact, the real price is two ninety nine ninety five in five easy payments of only $59.99 plus shipping and not another $20 for shipping and service, shipping and, and handling. And that's the bit I found fascinating with these things. They charge you for shipping and handling, but then to get it to you, they've got to handle it. So why shouldn't that be incorporated in the price you pay in the first place? You should, you should write an angry letter to them, Kevin, I think. That's that's rhetorical. But anyway, if they want to want the wonderful world of Disney Chrissy Tree, and it tells you all these wonderful things it does, things move and lights go up and it's terrific, really wonderful. Uh, uh, only I, think really, I think you really want that Christmas tree, actually. <laughs> <laughs> only $300, too. It's, it's cheap enough. It's the price. a bargain, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the worrying thing is people must buy these bloody things or they wouldn't keep advertising them. Maybe. And they do say, as, as usual, act today or you could miss out. Strong demand is expected, the usual crap. Um, so there you are. Uh, but moving on from the Herald Sun to the Financial Review, their comment after Jan, uh, Jacinda Ardern won the election in New Zealand last week, they came out with a typical financial editorial attacking her and they say uh, Miss Ardern learned her soft power spinning skills in Tony Blair's cabinet office which is not a plus for her but let's go let's move on yet it is the hard achievements of her predecessors that she will have to emulate if her second term is going to produce more than just the extravagant but unfulfilled promises that began her first the predecessors of course being being prime ministers whose economic um, policies they supported, that the financial review supported. Sadly, the prospects don't look good amid a ban on oil and gas exploration, a very expensive push from 85% to 100% green power, and other anti-growth gestures. So according (laughs) to the financial review... According to the financial review, banning oil and gas exploration and pushing for 100% green power is an anti-growth gesture. So what if it is? Growth is crazy. (laughs) Well, we know, know, of course, you know, where they're coming from. Yeah. They're uh, obviously in the the anti-renewable energy um, basket along with the the government and the Murdoch media, even though the... uh, Financial review is actually a nine, a, a nine publication. Yeah, so um, only 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 raw proper fossil fuel can power the future. Mm. Nothing else will do. Mm. And fracking and nuclear, of course, as well. Yeah, I suppose 
a lot of these uh, news outlets are actually quite reliable if you just take the opposite of what they're intending <laughs> to get across. <laughs> exactly. And given we'll get the result of the, or we might get the result of the American election today sometime, uh, or we may not, as, as it turns out, interesting that uh, people, you know, some people are saying, well, Biden's going to be putting on the economy and he's talking about a green revolution or whatever, not revolution, but green changes. But of course, every time he's being attacked, Trump's saying he's going to destroy the oil industry, he's going to stop fracking. He denies that. He says, no, I'm going to support oil, I'm going to support fracking. So mm. I suspect he's just another politician and mm. we might have to really wait and see whether he does do much about the environment, in fact, once he's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think he'll do, he, he, he'll be moderate in everything, I think. This is Biden. He'll moderately, yeah, yeah. he'll moderately support the environment, but he won't. He won't bring down the axe on on oil, the oil industry. I don't think he. I don't think he'd dare, or he. I don't think he could. But he could start putting pressure on them, like um, like taking away all their, a lot of their tax concessions, because the oil industry gets huge tax concessions in the USA. Yeah, the the best the best you can say about him, I think, is that he's not Trump. Yeah, <laughs> but. Uh... And picking up the point Zeb raised earlier about war again, uh, when he came to Australia at one stage when he was vice president and listening to him, it could have been any of the American warmongering presidents over the years. He just he was talking about the, the great American war machine and how we're protecting the world everywhere and just, just straight warmongering. So I don't have a lot of hope in him, but it, as I say, he's not Trump. That's the best thing you can say. Mm, yep. Yeah, New Zealand's. New Zealand is a really fascinating case because they're they're, they're so far ahead of of Australia now in terms of um, you know renewable energy, social issues. You know they're you know they're powering away, they're becoming an astonishing country. But they're anti-growth, John. There's <laughs> just been a big report from one of the very conservative Australian uh, consulting companies. I've forgotten which one I should remember, but I don't, that was explaining uh, that if Australia didn't adopt renewable energy fast, we would have this, you know, huge reduction in our future growth because of the, because of the effects of, um, of uh, you know, global warming, global heating. Yeah, the, the, it might be the, the Grattan Institute had a report last week. Maybe it was that one, was it? The Grattan Institute report? No, 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 it wasn't Grattan. It was one of the uh, other big... So it was KPMG or one of that lot? One of that lot, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Deloitte, Deloitte, it was Deloitte. Oh, that's right, it was Deloitte too. Yeah, You're right, yeah. yeah. And so that, that was quite fascinating that they were arguing that if we didn't, didn't you know, do our share for, for you know, for doing... For, for, trying to slow down global heating etc etc we would um we would be forsaking a whole lot of growth we we should be able to expect in the future so you know it's not it's just not true to say that growth has to be built around fossil fuels it's just you know just ridiculous yeah, well, but, but, you know, people have been saying that for so long, and uh, but the the fossils still control the agenda, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. There are the you know the the really right wing back backbenchers. You know, a lot of them are National Party, but some of them are Liberal in the federal parliament. You know, they don't they actually don't believe that 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 solar power, you know, from you know photovoltaics work at all. You know. <laughs> 
they they really talk as if, if as if, if as if you know solar power isn't a thing. It just doesn't work, even though there have been whole twenty four hour periods now when wind and solar together have powered the whole of South Australia. And they keep talking about it as being too expensive, where in fact we know the costs have come down to the point where it's now cheaper than fossils anyway. Well, they've gone past. They've gone past that because they haven't been able to maintain that one. Now, now some of them have just gone even more crazy, in my view, where they're saying that they don't, they don't work at all. Uh, I, don't, I don't know where they expect it, think the electricity comes from. Yeah, well, um, it comes from coal, John, and gas. You've got to understand that. And hopefully, hopefully uranium. Uh, yeah, but Kevin, you know what I'm saying, though, don't you? That in fact, you know... <laughs> It can be shown from official figures that, you know, for a whole 24-hour periods or even more, South Australia, the yeah, whole state, has exactly, run, on, exactly. run, on, run on renewable power. And there's no nuclear and there's no, uh, there's no um, um, you know, uh, hydropower in South Australia. It's all, um, it's all um, wind, wind and panels. Yeah, it's quite dreadful. Last week, when Johnson um, had a discussion with uh, with Morrison, and yep. and he talk, he's certainly taking a much stronger stand than, than Australia by a long way. But Morrison's only response when he was asked, "Well, what are you going to do now?" But he's talking about about um, you know zero emissions by whatever twenty fifty or whatever. Mm. Um, Morrison's only response is, "We are Australia. We'll do it our way." Um, Whatever that is. Well, yeah, well, it's, that's code for saying we won't do anything at all. Thank you very much. That's right. That's right. And even all these people saying 2050, it's quite handy because it's 30 years away. I think most people concerned about what's really happening in the environment mm. would say that's too long. We need to be much do it much more quickly than that. Well, absolutely. We've got to at least get started. Mm. I mean, Australia is the biggest exporter of um, coal in the world and uh, we're, a th- we're a first world country with a very high standard of living with a very high individual um, production of greenhouse gases per head and even 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 with that in, that happening the government doesn't feel any obligation to to get involved with the, you know the international effort to um, reduce greenhouse gases it's just just extraordinary yeah yeah and on such wonderful people, the International Monetary Fund, it came out last week and it said that our recovery, our economic recovery, which is the important one from COVID-19, stop the health consequences, COVID-19 economic recovery, um, we need to reduce business taxes and increase the goods and services tax to boost investment and create jobs. So once again, they're saying, let's reduce taxes on the rich even more and increase the goods and services tax, which as we know, is a regressive tax that impacts on the poor much more. So as usual, they're pushing the line that the poor have to pay for the consequences of, uh, of COVID now, yeah, which is yeah. the usual story. But yeah, crazy I have got one really sad story, John, and you, you, John, would remember very well the White Shoe Brigade in Queensland. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, Mike Gore and the other developers. That's right. Um, yes. at, at a period when the... When the um, Belky Peterson and his offsider Russell Hins, the planning minister, 
kept kept mm-hmm. finding big bags of big brown paper bags of money on their doorsteps. John, you might recall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They. 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 Um. That was that was current. That was very frequent. Yes, even on their desks, Kevin. Well, Mike Gore, the hero of Sanctuary Cove, which did great things for the environment, of course, but then the yeah. paper bag seemed to cover that problem. Yeah. Um, he's he's Sion, his son, Craig Gore, uh-huh. uh, who, ma- who made the rich list a few years ago. Um, poor young Craig. This is very sad news, actually, because Craig set up his own development company and went broke and then went bankrupt. And then he set up a company more recently as an investment arm for self-funded retirees. Uh, sadly, as of now, he's had to move out of the mansion he, uh, he's he been living in, and he's now living in a jail cell, John. How sad. Oh, oh. oh Yeah, yeah. It sounds like the yeah, path he, of, um, the young Trump, the young Trumps. Sounds like the same path they're likely to follow. I think. Yeah. Oh, right. Well, he he seems to have, he seems to have misplaced a, a few million dollars of other people's money, um, <laughs> and he's he after being found guilty, he's 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 uh, his bail was revoked, and he's uh, he's in the he's in the slot, awaiting actual sentence for it. But there's also other. Other cases pending, pending about swindling people as well. So his future isn't looking as good as it might. Oh dear. Yeah, but I knew you'd be upset, John. He's ploughed through Daddy's money, by the sound of it. <laughs> yeah, I think Daddy ploughed through Daddy's money. But <laughs> anyway, whatever, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Oh. Any comments here? Me- Megan's ever been very quiet. I am not aware of this uh, situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it goes back. <laughs> Can we talk about some millennial news? Some news from the last twenty the white, years. The White Shoe Brigade. Well, okay. So millennial news. Um, remember, we've talked about Paladin, the um, company that um, had its office in a shack down a back lane uh, on Kangaroo Island that got millions out of the government and out of um, Peter Dutton to run the security at the Manus Island Detention Centre. And there's been a number of lots of scandals around the company, but the the latest one I find absolutely fascinating. They got they got 1.8 million, I think it was. They, they've been pocketing they've been pocketing something like well, many many millions of dollars a year in straight profits from the government contracts they've got. But they got a contract to provide security in Port Moresby for the residential area of the Australian Federal Police. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, why should a private company, Paladin, get thousands and thousands of dollars (laughs) Uh. to protect the police who one would have thought, (laughs) what's it say about the police if they can't do it themselves? That's the point, isn't it? That is extremely interesting. I'm pretty sure that is kind of the point of the police is like they're the, the, they're, they're like private, um, private security, but they're public security. It's weird that they need their own private security. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, we seem that we seem to be getting into the same territory as the, um, the private security, which was supposed to look after our quarantine hotels, you know, 
We can't use the police for that. We've got to use private contractors. Victoria, yeah. So, yeah, in Victoria. It's sort of interesting. It's sort of verging on the same sort of territory. Yeah, well, we're seeing privatisation everywhere we look now. Yeah, privatise yeah. everything that yeah. moves. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, guys, it's getting to the top of our um, chat time. Yeah, let's move on to transport. Yeah, so we'll take a little break. And for everyone who's listening, we're listening to City Limits and you're on 3CR and you can podcast this show and you can also get more information about our show at 3cr.org.au forward slash City Limits. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, 10am every Monday morning on Community Radio 3CR. Also live streaming on the web and weekly podcasts at 3cr.org.au. So listen in for the very latest bicycle stories, news and views from Melbourne and around the cycling universe. Listen in. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter.
Okay, back on City Limits and Transport, John McPherson. And John, one of the things that Kath Clarkham is going to talk about today, and we'll get her on next month, but was this corruption inquiry um, in Victoria, which has forced two people out, the head of V-Line and the the um, the, the bloke at, um, at mm. Metro who actually allots the contracts, and he, he resigned as well. Um, comment on all this, because it's, um, it's been pretty shocking, really. I, it's hard to know, you know, where where to start. But you know, once upon a time, it would have seemed, you know, um, you know, almost unbelievable that these sort of things would be going on. But um, um, but not these days. Um, again, you could you could argue that it's to do with privatisation. You know, all these all the cleaning that what once would have been done by um, railway personnel. Um, is now outsourced and therefore you've got all these contracts flying around left, right and centre. Um, and, it, you know, it's, um, it's, it seems to be, you know, quite easy to start skimming money off or having getting backhanders um, between, between officials. You know, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, you've got to ask the question, where, where have we got to with all this privatisation, it doesn't seem like we've got to a good place. It seems like the the supervision and and the control of all these um, all, all this um, activity is um, is pathetic. You know, the the uh, the former officials officials in the in the government that are supposed to supervise all this stuff, of course, are now so removed from it that they they have little. Um, little control over it until until things go yeah. really wrong yeah for listeners that don't know what happened the uh, the independent anti-corruption commission have had an inquiry into corruption in melbourne's railways which uh, heard that v-line chief executive james pinder had monthly payments from the cleaning company transclean and had three hundred twenty thousand dollars in funds spent on his home uh, by that company as a part of a a, a deal between the two 
uh, bosses, the boss of Transclean and, and the chief executive of Beeline. Yeah, um, and it and it seems yeah. to you know it, it. I don't know. It seems to almost look like it was you know that this is what always happens. <laughs> I mean, like you still say, John. Like like I think about Tasmania and. Mm. Um, uh, the Guns Corporation yep. there, which yeah, is a yeah. logging company. Sure. And mm-hmm. just that kind of people in positions of power uh, communicating with each other behind the scenes. It seems like it has been going on for a very long time, but increased privatisation mm. makes it a more fertile ground to try to get away with it, which we can see this is why the importance of a anti-corruption commission, like to find these things out is very, very yeah. important. Yeah, and of course the um, uh, Peter, what's his name? Peter Bolus, wasn't it? The um, Bolus, yeah. Peter Bolus. He he's the Metro Trains bloke who um, who a lot of the contracts, and one of the and he also was was obviously he's admitted to was taking money, but mm. he one of the suggestions made by Robert Redlick, who's running the inquiry, was that that because he was both allotting it and then supervising it, so it was pretty easy for him to keep the other mob on, trans clean or whatever they're caught on, um, and keep taking the money. And Redlick suggests that at least they should be separate things. He, the person who allots the contract then steps back completely from the, from the, from the next step, the running of it, and that's mm-hmm. overseen by a separate independent group, um, which probably would make some sense at least. Uh, as mm. part of the solution. I mean, the ideal solution is to bring the whole thing back into public hands, of course. Yeah, well, it does start to look like that's where it'll end up, doesn't it? Um, mm. Because it wasn't, even though the, the taking of the money is a is a serious offence, um, it also came on top of the fact that they knew that TransClean was failing to disinfect the trains during the COVID crisis, which after the government had already allocated a huge amount of funds to pay extra to get them cleaned. Yep. Well, they, that, that's right. Well, it's part of the part of the deal between these officials seems to have been to run interference to make sure that it didn't come to light that yep. the job that TransClean or whatever they're called were doing wasn't wasn't all that wonderful. Yeah. It's kind of um, crazy that TransClean can pay you know tens of thousands of dollars to these officials they could have just paid that to their workers given them a mm-hmm. raise and had them clean the trains mm-hmm. that's not like rocket science mm-hmm. no not really <laughs> i can't believe meg said that money <laughs> <laughs> to workers for god's sake <laughs> well that, that that leads you to think about australia post of course you know oh my and gosh. Uh, and the um you know the the huge bonuses that the top officials there got not not even mentioning the watchers, uh, yeah. and apparently the um, the posties for for working their guts out down on the ground got about six hundred dollars or something for a mm. for a um, bonus. It's, yeah. it's, and uh, we're getting a cut service, of course. I mean, they've cut yeah, back the yeah. the, yeah. Mail, the general mail service, but they're concentrating heavily on parcels. Mm. Mm. Well, just um, anecdotally, I've noticed that Australia Post is increasingly contracting out their parcel delivery and delivery drivers are um, delivering on weekends. And I don't know what the conditions are for those those workers. It would be interesting to get someone on and talk about that. They've could. changed. They've they've taken Australia Post off the name of the parcel delivery service, and the union certainly believes that's to that's to facilitate privatising the whole thing. 
Yeah. And when it, when it blew up in that inquiry a couple of weeks ago, again, the Financial Review editorialised that the only solution is to privatise it. You know, it's there's yeah. no need for a postal service to be run by the government, that, that line. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So there, and, and I heard someone else in the last few days, someone of the, one came out and said it needs to be privatised as well. The usual suspects are coming out now, yeah. Anyway, back on the back on the trains. Yeah, um, Transclean were paid one point three million dollars a month extra for the extra COVID cleaning from the government, not from yeah. um, not from the train companies themselves. That was the allocated amount, one point three million a month. That's one of the um, it's one of the interesting things about the contracts with the, that these private companies get for you know running bits of public transport is they don't they don't have to cop any of the um, consequences you know they have mm-hmm. they, get, they get paid they get their profit come what may really um, and mm-hmm. the government really in the end the government takes all the um all all the risk and uh, and yeah. even though it's supposed to be sort of privatized that's what happens yeah yeah it's a funny kind of privatized isn't sure it? is mm. Well, it's really rent out because we still own all the infrastructure publicly. We're using we very loosely here, but the public owns the infrastructure, but the private companies run it, and they get you know the contract gives them massive profits. So effectively, we're renting it to them to run. Yeah, yeah, and they, yeah. And they get the cash flow, which they can do all sorts of interesting things with. Yes. Yeah, and and indeed, with Cap next month, because one of the things she did want to talk about was the the impact of the whole privatisation on the workforce. And and also the the figures just I know we've talked about it many times, John. But the the massive profits they make, which uh, which if it was in private hand, in at least still in public hands, would be money that um, would be still in public hands. It could go into the system itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course you can you can you can massage the way the money moves, uh, you know, a dozen different ways. So of course, if it was in public hands. If there was a conservative government, they'd want the public operation to actually show a loss, because they'd be always, you know, wanting to show that it should be back in private hands, where it can possibly make a profit. You know, it's, it's all, it's all ca- caught up with ideology, not not very much to do with um, um, actually improving the level of service, which is what they should be should be focusing on. Um, um another example of perhaps a bit of a failure of trying to outsource manufacturing this time to private companies is I saw that the the state government, there was an electric vehicle manufacturing facility that was promised for the Latrobe Valley and it was going to be this great thing. I think it was going to make electric buses for Victoria. I'm not entirely sure, but they've just said that they're not going to recommit to the construction of that facility and it's something to do with disagreements with the private company that they were working with. Do you know anything about that, John? No, I wish I did. I, I had I had heard about that facility that was supposed to be being built in Latrobe Valley, and I think it was was going to be small trucks and buses. I think. Okay. You know? Yeah. And that that sort of got going a couple of years years ago. At least you know that the talk started. So I'm really disappointed to hear it's. It's collapsed. Um, mm. There's similar things going on in South Australia. So let's hope that whatever's going on over there for producing electric buses and things is going to be on a more substantial footing. Mm-hmm. I think 
in this early stage of building electric vehicles, this is me being cynical, that there's a lot of scope for private operators to scoop up government money and, and, and then do a runner sort of thing. And, um, you know, for the, for, the, for the people in charge of the projects, you know, the proposals to do quite well out of it without actually, actually producing anything. It's a bit, it's a bit, a little bit like a gold rush at the moment. Yeah, well, and last month we had um, our Friends of the Earth representative talking about how the trams are uh, going to be on renewables and yes. just in theory, the idea of having buses, electric buses, mm-hmm. would add to this pro- progression towards uh, public mm-hmm. public transport that actually is um, carbon neutral. Yeah, um, the tram system i believe is already on or very close to being on renewable power the the government the government of course not the operators have signed a contract to get all and all the power that's needed from um um solar power, mm. power panel you know polyvoltaic farms um that's already happening because there's no reason why the same thing couldn't happen for the electric trains but that hasn't happened so far that would be a bigger bigger project mm. Um, mm. Electric buses are starting to become, they're very common in China, pure electric buses. Um, uh, Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand has promised that the whole uh, bus fleet of New Zealand is going to go electric over, I think it's the next five or ten years. Uh, Sydney's promised to, to um, put into operation a big electric bus fleet uh, over the next couple of years. Victoria, I believe, has got one electric bus on test testing with an operator in Melbourne. So we're we're really trailing trailing along, mm. and the government's doing. I don't know what their attitude is. They seem to be doing about as 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 little as they can get away with. Really, it's um, and electric buses, you know, have a lo- many many advantages over diesel buses, which are pretty horrible, horrible, rough, vibrating, noisy polluting things electric buses are so much better um in so many ways that um, you'd think that everybody would be you know the pressure would be on everywhere for the changeover to electric buses you really would Mm. we've got about 10 minutes left on um city limits for today's episode and so kevin i'm sure has like a a million questions and there's a lot more stuff, but one one item I want to raise because John John mentioned to me he wouldn't mind talking about the issue of jaywalking and and, <laughs> and its relationship to cars. Uh, an interesting item, John. Melbourne City Council uh, is about to extend the footpath in Spencer Street between Lonsdale and Collins Street. Um, it's it's actually a city of Melbourne state government initiative, but there's gonna they're gonna widen it and and cut the the traffic down to one lane southbound, and they say that about ninety percent of trips this is an interesting stat about ninety percent of trips within the Hoddle grid are made on foot, but only twenty six percent of street space is allocated to footpaths. The rest yeah. is allocated to cars, um, and they say the extra space for pedestrians will help with physical distancing and provide more space to get the city moving once restrictions are eased. And um, the, the city council chief executive said more than 15,000 people cross Spencer Street outside Southern Cross Station during the morning peak. That was um, so even this year. So, um, John, that's an interesting one for pedestrians, and it links into your 
concern about or what you want to say about jaywalking? Yeah, well, um, commenting directly on what what you've just um, mentioned, the um, it seems to me that that expecting all the um, all the all the um, commuters leaving um, Southern Cross Station to cross on the on the level across the street is ridiculous, you know, in its own terms. Um, um, it's it's you know it's it is very congested and crowded and certainly narrowing the street will will help but it still leaves the pedestrians corralled on the edge of the edge of the footpath waiting for their turn to to cross while the cars of course get a much more um, um, generous run when of course the the number of cars compared with the number of commuters on foot you know is tiny and yet they get they get all the consideration not only space they get the consideration of time at the intersect, you know, at um, traffic lights and that sort of thing. To to me, it's it's ridiculous that that there aren't overhead walkways from the level of the um, medicine at um, it's it's at uh, Southern Cross. You know, the level mm. the level that you rise up to when you leave the um, the um, suburban platforms. You go on those long escalators up to that high level. Um, and then you just go, you get out the gates and go back down yeah, exactly, the escalator yeah. and come it's, out. It's, it's like so weird. It's, yeah. It's, so weirdly yeah. designed. So yeah. both, at, both at Burke Street and Collins Street, as far as I can see, there should be walkways on that level that cross over the street. And then you, get, then you can go down escalators in, onto the, the widened footpaths in Burke Street and um, Collins Street. That, that seems to me to be so, such an obvious improvement. It would take away some of the gorgeousness of the facade of the, of the station. You know, it's got that long glass facade. There'd be two walkways coming out of it. But, but frankly, I think you've got to put, um, um, what do you call it, um, ease of use ahead of, ahead of looks. And uh, mm. that station was built, built to look interesting when it doesn't actually work that well. Yeah. That's, how I, that's what I'd do to start with. And certainly, you know, there are issues, you know, there are, you know, there are the issues of, of pedestrians and cars in that area is, is, pretty, is pretty difficult. I came across an article in um, an American um, journal talking about um, jaywalking laws and the history of them. They, the, the US apparently has had laws against jaywalking, which is, which is crossing the street away from you know away from places where pedestrians are supposed to cross the street which is usually at intersections or at standalone um, uh, pedestrian crossings with, with with you know zebra crossings or with the traffic lights but what this article points out that the countries with the lowest road toll and the lowest numbers of pedestrian deaths on their roads places like UK and Norway do not have anti-jaywalking laws they allow people to cross streets where they want to based on their own um their their own ass assessment of the situation and yeah. um it also the article also points out that in the usa the anti-jaywalking laws are the sort of laws that police use to go after people from minority groups mm -hmm. um you know you can you can imagine how that that works can't you mm, absolutely you, know, you, don't, you don't go after the businessman with his briefcase who's crossing the street where he feels like if you go after the um, possibly the school child with a slightly Asian face or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's a, it, I thought it was a very interesting 
uh, interesting that, that you know these sort of harsh laws that that are supposed to you know well they're supposed to benefit everybody but what they really benefit is the um, the, the car drivers you know it's keeping the keeping the pedestrians out of the hair of the car drivers and let's not worry about making the um, trip for the for the pedestrians that much harder by uh, f- forcing them always to go to their corner. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I imagine revenue raising. Oh, of course. Of course yes. It's, yes. Uh, yes. I know people who've been fined here, it, like crossing an empty street. Yes. You know, and you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And very well said. Yeah. Well, if the, it's it's the sort of thing the police can do when they're feeling bored and there's nobody else around to. Um, Seems that way. To go after, yeah, it's um, it, it certainly happens, and it's you know, it's 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 again, it's just making the street more hostile for anybody but cars, and of course, once upon a time, streets were for everybody, um, but as soon as motoring started taking off in the early twentieth century, the organisations were in place to start putting pressure on everybody but the car driver to um, to get off the street, you know, so. It's uh, it's it's been going on now for a hundred years and or more. Mm. Yeah. Well, actually, a woman called Jennifer Yang, John, who was um, <laughs> who ran for Melbourne City Council, she claims to be a Labor Party person, but right. she actually one of her major policy was, uh, apart from supporting business, was end the war on drivers. She wanted to open <laughs> up the city for cars and, t- and cut all sorts of expenses for drivers so they get cars back into the city. She's she's big on that one, John. <laughs> And what does she want to do with the cars when they get into the city? Oh, you, know? uh, you well, you, you drive around. Um, they drive around looking for somewhere to park, I suppose. <laughs> but, that, but of course, then the Greens had a totally opposite. We'll get the results of council elections later this week. But uh, Greens, of course, had totally the opposite uh, policy, which was to get cars out of the place. But John, one that again with time left dear to your heart, I think again, mm-hmm. Marion Terrell, whom I think you know, she's the oh, yes. Transport and Cities Program Director at the Grattan Institute. Mm. She came out last week and said all the government spending on infrastructure, the the big projects that we talk about, where they they what they go for the big project because it looks great and it's sexy. Um, but she says the biggest need and is in just maintaining what we've got. And she says there's a pressing infrastructure need. The mounting maintenance backlog is a major challenge. A historical underspend on maintenance has contributed to a backlog across all infrastructure sectors, which will erode the quality and reliability of many assets and lead to higher costs for future asset maintenance and renewal. Unless addressed, maintenance of our transport networks will become increasingly unsustainable, she says. Yep, well, certainly the situation, I'm going to mention the USA here, because I think their situation is more extreme than ours, but they have a situation where they they built, you know, this miraculous, you know, that's the way they thought of it, the international interstate um, um, freeway system, you know, that was built in the 1960s and 70s. And um, that now is starting to fall apart because it's quite old. It's, you know, 50 years old or more. And, and they are now very concerned about, about trying to sustain that they have you know every now and again they have a major bridge collapses and that sort of thing we haven't had a great deal of that yet but certainly if you look at um let's let's now swap over to rail um here in australia in melbourne we've got a suburban rail system that desperately needs to be brought up to a decent standard 
Um, they're, even though they're, they're, they're indulging in the projects like the Melbourne Underground Rail, Rail Line, you know, the tunnel, Metro Tunnel, they're still ignoring that the, that the quality of the maintenance on a lot of the suburban system is really subpar. Um, and so I think Marion's got a really, a really strong point that, that rather than lining up the big projects like this, the orbital rail line they want to build around Melbourne, they should be fixing up what they've got first, for sure, and spend the next decade fixing, fixing everything up on the present rail system before, before indulging in another great grand project. But um, I think and, and Daniel Andrews is a bit, a bit addicted to his grand projects. It's worked for him so far. Sorry? It's worked pretty well for him to get re-elected, yeah. Yes, that's right, exactly, yeah. And I think, it, I think for instance, the northeast, the northeast link between, the, you know, the finish off the ring road, that, that's, you know, that's now looking like it could easily be a $20 billion project. Ugh, just completely doesn't need to be <laughs> built. No, it's a complete um, monster, monster, it's a monstrous thing. And I think its main reason for happening is that it'll, the scale of it will generate the most profit for, for whoever operates it, for the government, which will, you know, I, I imagine will end up being transurban or somebody like that. Mm. It's like um, nobody, has, nobody knows how to um, haul, even haul these things back to a more mod- modest size. I mean, uh, Yeah, well, the North East Link as well, yeah. I think it's been on the on the sort of plan for Melbourne since the 1929 or mm-hmm. however long ago yeah. uh, transport plan, but it's just completely out of date and we just we know now that mm. adding new major roads doesn't help at all with traffic or congestion. So Correct, correct. And, of course, um, Zeb, it, it also it links up it links up ultimately with a 21 lane, I think it is, at the Eastern Freeway when it comes into there. And those 21 lanes, was, that, that reserve was set aside originally to be the Doncaster rail line, but the rail line was never built. And um, so it's actually joining something that was supposed to be a rail line and there's going to be 21 lanes of car traffic. Yeah, well, somewhere through there, they could probably thread a railway line if they wanted to, but of course they don't want to. You know, the officials have long decided that they don't need it. Uh, a rail line to Doncaster that's just not needed guys unfortunately we've come to the top of the show so any final comments from anyone otherwise we'll have to start winding up no only final comment is next week we were looking at energy issues and we're hoping to have a chat about hydrogen next week we might get around to it eventually let's hope it's next week (laughs) sounds good thanks so much John for joining us Zeb it's great to have you here and uh, thank you Karina for pressing the buttons You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, 
what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people. Because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders, this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.